Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome back, beloveds. We have an amazing podcast episode today that I'm absolutely thrilled about. Um, This is a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, It's a challenge to be my friend, apparently. Uh, They remind me of this often. Um, (laughs) I have high standards. I'm scared of people. You know how it goes, uh, but my my amazing friend Milo is here today to share with us their story um, of, you know, their whole journey and, and about being trans in this world, in this community, um, and it's so important to be able to be gifted with these stories. Um, the vulnerability and strength required in that vulnerability is such an incredible gift to us. Um, Milo is a gift to me in my life. They are a beautiful, loving influence in my children's lives. Um, when they enter my home, I feel at peace. And this is, I don't think it's just a me thing as much as I always want to be special all the time. <laughs> this is a Milo thing. They are a remarkable human, um, a remarkable teacher, a remarkable advocate. And so uh, count your count your blessings today because you're, you're lucky and you're in for a treat. So um, welcome Milo to Sister Speak and the podcast uh, that I do. I'm glad to have you here. <laughs> Thanks for letting me be here. I'm very excited. Good. Well, how we typically start um, with this Sister Speak platform is just an invitation for you to share about kind of your roots, where you've come from, uh, laying the foundation for the story that that our listeners are going to hear today. Yeah. So uh, for me, my story starts of being uh, born and raised in Oklahoma. Uh, I was one of those kids that grew up in a city that had about 1,200 people in it, uh, one stoplight by the bank, um, okay. so you always knew knew where to go if you are by the bank, uh, and uh, my biggest part of my upraising was the church. Um, being in a small community like that, you kind of have to find the place where everyone gathers, and from there, <clears throat> learn how to navigate relationships, and um, the church ended up being the place for me. Uh, instantly enough, I was actually born and raised, like, my parents' house was directly in front of the, the pastor's house, which was directly in front of the church. And so I was able to walk from my house, like, the length of a football field to the church. And that was my Sunday commute every morning. My mom would wake me up, brush my hair, put a dress on me, and then usher me out the door. 
um, where I would go to church, uh, but she nor my dad never went. Uh, and my older brother would go every once in a while by that point. Um, but uh, every Sunday morning it was being rushed out the door to, to get out there. And honestly, at that point, you know, I was so young and I had ADHD and uh, <laughs> undiagnosed. I think I probably annoyed the Sunday school teachers more than anything, but uh, they always welcomed me and welcomed my idiosyncrasies uh, and all the things that came with that. Um, I love this part of your story, which I, I don't know that I've heard uh, spoken in that way, but, you know, there are parts of us that are so evident from childhood that as we grow into adulthood, it's like, oh, that, that piece of me was always there. And this kind of draw for you, you weren't taken by your parents. You had this internal, like, this is where I'm supposed to be, and it's the church. And there was something about that for you that that was a rhythm in your life, even when you were little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mom was definitely more um, of a drive there in my younger years. Um, Sunday school was like my least favorite. Um, and then I wasn't old enough to go to big church, as we called it, because uh, in my family, you had to be at least in the third grade. sure that's because my mom was too afraid of having her rambunctious kid just (laughs) running around a church building unsupervised. Uh, But yeah, I think uh, I really can't remember not going to church, which is an interesting gift to have, um, especially with the family that I was raised in. Um, My mom is very uh, agnostic at at best. Um, A religious is like the truest form of her um, push against uh, kind of that organized thought and teachings. And then my dad was a kind of a quiet spiritual person that connected with uh, the divine in nature, um, but he was disabled at the age of like 38. Mm-hmm. And so being out and walking and hiking and uh, camping, fishing, all that kind of stuff uh, got limited for him. Um, and that was part of, that's part of his story. Um, and then my grandparents, uh, they got into the Episcopal Church uh, when they retired and then did that for 10 years and then dropped it. Um, so I can have these moments of looking back at my childhood and my family where I saw my family involved in church, um, but it never made sense to me why it was such a regular thing for me on Sunday mornings, mm-hmm. um, with my mom especially, until I was older and we talked about that. But um, yeah, being able to from a young age, have the draw towards the church be rooted with the people that I spent time with mm-hmm. more than having my family try to teach me like a religious thought or this is something that we have to do because God tells us to. Um, I th- to this day, I'm convinced is what holds me in, in the work that I do, uh, that it's always been about the people. Wow. And that, gosh, resonates so deeply inside of me in my knowledge of you. You know, I I work often at this intersection of um, people's spiritual trauma and awakening and kind of this narrative of being made to do these things and being given messages about what to believe and, Mm -hmm. you know, not having heard much um, or from many people about church really just being a communal relational experience without these things kind of being forced upon upon an individual and and sometimes I wonder how you still do church work (laughs) um just from my own experience and all and all of the stories that that I have been gifted to hear and heal 
Um, but that makes a lot more sense kind of hearing that. In, in your upbringing in the church, were you given messages about sexuality and gender um, kind of from, from a teaching lens, or was that not part of your experience? It's what's so fascinating about that. <clears throat> I think about it often um, because I was raised in a Southern Baptist church in a small rural town in Oklahoma. The answer to that question for most people will probably be like, oh, yeah, of course you probably heard all kinds of things about shame and like women being suppressed and LGBTQ people being um, not only sinning but disassociated from God and all these different teachings. Yet when I look back and actually think about the theology and the teachings that I received, I don't have any memory of that. I don't have memories of hearing a um, fire and brimstone sermon in the pulpit or hearing uh, uh, any form of this type of person isn't welcome. Um, In fact, I can remember my pastor um, doing all kinds of things about, you know, looking for Christ in the unexpected. Um, I can remember a sermon that he once did where he talked about um, a pastor from a different church wearing these like very ragged clothes and sitting in front of the, the church. Um, it was like a city church. And people assumed it was a, a homeless person or a beggar and were treating him in that manner. And uh, by the time the service started, the person walks up the aisle onto the pulpit and all of a sudden, you know, oh, it's the pastor. But like that type of storytelling is what I remember hearing from my pastor growing up because he was so much more focused on, uh, from what I can remember, like the actual actions and Mm -hmm. kindness. And uh, when we did talk about scriptures from Paul and all the things that Paul could have said, um, I remember him talking about like, what does it mean to be a Christian and have these um, ways of being in this world? Like, if we are through a process, going through a process of justification and sanctification, um, what does that mean in our daily acts? Mm. Those are the teachings that I remember growing up and hearing. It wasn't until I was in college uh, and started listening to voices outside of that that I started hearing the the, the negative theology, uh, the theology of exclusion and hate, um, and. That's when I had my first real encounter of having someone look at me as uh, a signed female at birth person and say, you're not welcomed in the church as a minister because of all of these different things. But I answered a call to ministry when I was 14 years old at a summer camp. And my youth pastor immediately celebrated that and was ecstatic for me and was like, we're going to figure out where we can get you in places of being able to do leadership and teaching opportunities and that kind of stuff. And as soon as we got back, uh, we always had a youth Sunday after our summer camp where the youth would youth be able to have a testimony time and share whatever it is that was laid upon their heart or their experiences. And at that same Sunday, we would do a, if someone you know accepted the call to Christ, uh, needed to be baptized and wanted to make that confession, um, if they were called to ministry, like all of these announcements and proclamations were made, and I and another one of my female friends were both celebrated as answering the call to ministry. Um, I never once heard, you know, this is something you can't do. In fact, it was just encouraged. Um, 
And I had that same type of experience with that pastor when I went to college, actually, uh, when I was hearing all of these negative voices about women in ministry from my college campus, from my professors, um, as well as the churches I was attending in my college town. You know, he was the one that was actually asking my dad, like, every day, like, how, how, was, how was Milo doing? Uh, how, how was Megan at the time? Uh, and was always excited for me and inquisitive. Um, I don't know. I never really followed up on that relationship. Um, by the time I was really kind of coming into this, I want to learn about the complexities of people who are so loving and so kind and are Christians who are more traditional and here I am as a very non-traditional Christian minister, as a queer, um, you know, trans minister. I never got to meet him in that space to see mm-hmm. who I am, if that would be embraced. But I wouldn't be afraid to go into that space with him if given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of people I can say that about who have been in my life. Yeah, there's so much safety in the way you were encountered and engaged with in your faith in your early life. Um, just sitting here listening to you, I'm like, this is the inverse of everything <laughs> I was exposed to, you know, and, and m- many of our listeners will understand Christian culture. Um, but you know, having messages like women cannot be in positions mm-hmm. of leadership because they do not have access to, um, to God in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the church growing up that I went to, um, my mother's a very strong, very passionately um, devoted Christian woman and um, very feisty. And her being told <laughs> that she could not teach a Sunday school class if there were any men in it. And, um, you know, women often being delegated to um, only working with children or other women and not being able to be a voice for um on behalf of god or on behalf of god's teachings but i also loved you reflecting on kind of what are the behaviors that Mm. we should do if we are to call ourselves christian in my own deconstruction i began to differentiate what i call jesus stuff Mm. from christianity and i was like we just got to do Jesus stuff. Like to me, Jesus is a feminist socialist who always stood on the side of the oppressed, who elevated the voices of those who are outcasted and who gave, um, as much as possible of himself to those in need. And so that felt so true to me. And yet I felt like, why are we not talking about Jesus stuff more? Mm. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian if we're not doing the Jesus stuff? Um, so I love hearing you say that because I'm like, yeah, Jesus stuff. This is what I was talking about. <laughs> I, that would have been a much maybe more in alignment um, experience for me, but we all have our own journeys. Um, but it sounds like in college you started to be exposed to some of the more dogmatic, mm-hmm. um, kind of oppressive, maybe even patriarchal mm-hmm. views that Christianity can so much of the time have connected with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I went to a very conservative uh, Baptist, Southern Baptist College in Oklahoma. And um, my first year there as a freshman, it was just, you know, it was the best thing ever. Uh, We had 
mandatory chapel, but I was there willingly anytime the doors were open. Um, I was taking classes that were focused on like doing youth ministry stuff. And so I think there was a little bit of this youth ministry is safe um, for for women, uh, but still kind of pushing it. So we were like edgy for the ones that were in the youth ministry classes. Um, And I was also like working with the women's basketball team as their like manager. So that meant I just cleaned all of their laundry and prepared it for them. So I was just so busy and so deeply invested in what the college was teaching me and what, you know, I needed to continue to learn and grow, but uh, I never had those challenges yet. I hadn't had that moment of going, oh, I'm about to hit a wall, I'm about to hit the ceiling, until it was actually the spring semester. And the most transformative moment of my life uh, happened when a a uh, group of organized, I guess technically we would call them protesters, but that's like stretching it. Um, it was just a group of people who were traveling around the United States. I think, I think they're called Soul Force. They came to Wheaton. Okay, yeah, so they came to my college, Oklahoma Baptist. Can I share with you that Wheaton in chapel taught all of us how to negate their presence on campus Mm -hmm. and how to engage in ways that we didn't listen to their message and shut them down in our chapel service so that when they did arrive, we could do that. Mm. We could shut, we could close our minds and we could reject and oust them. Close your minds and close your hearts. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, soul Mm. force is part of my, my own story too. I'm so excited because I think you're the first person I've ever talked with who has Mm -hmm. had this type of experience Um, I can't remember what chapel said, but I knew there was a chapel before the protest happened. Um, And so essentially what the protest was, uh, I don't know if it was what they did at your campus, but they just came into what was a street, technically a a city-owned street that was ran ran through the campus. And they had uh, crepe paper and on on their mouths and on their wrists, like symbolizing all the different um, like oppression and, being chained and held back as queer people experience in the world uh, um, as well as within the church. And they had, like, on signs, they had the statistics of uh, violence that occurred um, that year alone to LGBTQT people, uh, the statistics for homelessness, for youth, um, and different things like this. And they never said a single word. They just all stood in a line. And... um, The last sign that was raised was basically, it was like very dramatic, but the last sign that was raised was like, who will tear down these shackles? Wow. Um, And there were just like three of us that were immediately just like tanking the gray paper off because it was, it was like, it was like a five minute, five to 10 minute thing. But like the whole time you're standing there and watching it, it's, it's just disturbing because like you're, it's no, no way you don't pick up what they're trying to tell you. And just being a bystander watching it is just gut-wrenching. And so I spent the afternoon talking with uh, some of the students that had come, as well as there was a seminary student from California. Uh, I can't remember their name now. Oh, it makes me sad. Um, But I talked, I was like asking all of these like Bible questions, theology questions, and they were like, you need to go talk to this person. And so I went and talked with them and they were like, I actually would rather have this conversation sitting down over a cup of coffee. I'm going to be at this coffee shop in an hour. You can talk to me then. And then turned around and walked away. 
And I thought it was the coolest thing ever and, like, the best boundary keeping. And also that, like, (laughs) if you really want to do this deconstructive work, if you really want to do it and you're not just here to argue with me, then this is the setting and place that you may go. We have to make space Mm -hmm. to honor it. Yeah, and it be a place that's like, I need to make sure that you're actually curious and not just here to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I went to that coffee shop, and I talked with that person for uh, at least two hours. Um, and I didn't change their mind, and they didn't change my mind, because I still had within me this, like, I'm being told that being gay is bad, that God doesn't want that. You know, scripture has all of these things here that is alluding to this. And she was the first person that ever, like, actually broke down the whole context of scripture having these anti-LGBTQT messages within them and, you know, how certain words are incorrectly translated and how certain phrases were put in. Uh, much, much later, like within the past hundred years, we put it into scripture to have a very specific agenda uh, and how that can end up hurting people and just making it to where it wasn't just a black and white issue where there is a right and there is a wrong. And instead, it was the first time in my life that I entered into a space of going, I don't, I don't know if there is a right answer because of what we're being given, if it's not the whole truth, then how can I make a decision based off of that when there are all these other perspectives and lives that are being lived and harmed because we don't have the whole truth because we want to control? Um, and that was just the beginning of the end for me. Uh, I like worked for a church uh, as, a, as an unpaid intern and I was dry. It was a Wednesday. All of this was on a Wednesday because I drove to church that afternoon and I was just crying. And for people who know me, I do not cry. Mm-hmm. And I was wailing and weeping and t- her tears were just like falling down my face. And I was just like this moment where I go, oh, I don't know if I can believe in any of this if the person or divine being that I thought I understood isn't actually rooted in a holistic love for all people. And I went to that youth pastor's office that I was interning under, and he could see that I had been crying and was like, what's what's wrong? And I said, "Um, I just had this experience, and I shared that story with him, and I was just like, I just don't know how to believe in a God who would want to send people to hell just because they don't love the same as the majority. Mm. And... He, without breaking stride in conversation, just said, well, God doesn't want to, but he has to. Oh, my goodness. And that was the first time in my life that I went, I refuse to believe that. Mm. And, yeah, the the next whole part of my life was pushing against all the teachings that I had heard about God, the, the violent God, the angry God, the shame-driven God. Yeah. Uh, the God who is willing to tell a story about one's own begotten son, yet put that same person to a very torturous and horrible death. All of those, like, like what we think of as stereotypical Christian ideologies, were put on the chopping block. And for me, it became such a 
it became such a powerful experience because it wasn't just about trying to make sense of these questions. Looking back now, it, it was me trying to make sense of myself and my identity and what I could believe in. And not just in a, like, to have a belief system, but to, to morally and ethically guide my life. How could I possibly not have these questions asked and sometimes answered and wrestled with? Mm-hmm. Um, it just became an entire identity shift for me. Yeah, that that passion that was awo- awoken in you to try and find a way to make sense of that mm-hmm. for yourself is so evident. You know, in one of our conversations recently, you were telling me about uh, being either in college or seminary and kind of being the thorn in the craw of the professor, like, <laughs> wait, I got something. Nope, I don't agree with that. And I was like, oh, my Milo that's an Enneagram 9 has this, like, spicy <laughs> side that I don't know that I've seen. But but thinking about it in this context of how burdened your heart was for suffering and oppression mm-hmm. and this idea that something about a person, anything about a person, but, you know, you and I, I would imagine, share this belief that we are born the way that we are born. Mm-hmm. So something that is not a chosen thing could um, condense, condemn someone to eternal mm-hmm. pain, suffering, hell. Um, or even that there is like... A differentiation. A differentiation or even a desire mm-hmm. from this being who's trying to tell me how to live. Mm-hmm. If this being has any desire for pain and suffering to happen. That does not make sense. Not only does that not make sense, that to me it was just unacceptable. Yeah. So what I was digging through, and I I was definitely the angry one in my group. My friends would like always say that about me. They were like, you're just the angry one in the group. And it was just because, I think for me... <clears throat> You know, that so many people can wrestle with their belief systems in a way that I think can be a lot more open-handed than what I experienced when I went through my major deconstruction. Um, because I, th- I think there's a certain point for, to me, that I was just like, did everything I believe in, is it a lie? Am I a lie? Have I fallen for you know, this thing that is ultimately evil and is actually causing more hurt and damage to the world? Um, And if so, what does that say about me? Mm -hmm. Do I need to cut myself off from this? Does my entire life calling that I thought I experienced at the age of 14, which is so wild that all of this was like, I had a calling at the age of 14. My whole life has to be set with this now. Um, but that, that was, that was such a drive for me because I was like, I know I've had these moments Mm -hmm. and I know I've had this feeling of acceptance and love and, um, and there's truth in that. It was true. Mm -hmm. And And so if I can, if I have found those pockets of truth, how can I see those pockets be louder? Yeah expand them yeah and that's when I started learning about systems and privilege and power and like just the history of how those few things shape not only religion but the government and the world around us how we as humanity have created our 
giant social experiment that is civilization based on these, you know, truths that we have found and said that they are good and they are wonderful uh, and they give us right and wrong. Uh, We have to follow these. For me, like when I started deconstructing my faith, that's when all of these other things started to be deconstructed as well. Um, And so, yeah, like I can remember being in like studies with my friends and just like talking about anything that has to do with Spanish culture because we were in our Spanish class and how different cultures related to one another and just being like, well, why is it that they do this? but we don't, or we frown upon it, or we think it's uncivilized or uncouth, or, you know, what do we do as Americans that aren't great? Let's, like, really look at that kind of stuff, and how did also our Christianity shape the perspective that the world has on us? You know, all of these major questions for me just kept following one after the uh, another, and it just got to the point where I was just like, I can't make sense of my life if I can't make sense of God. Mm-hmm. A God, a God that you could understand. Mm-hmm. You know, as you you finish your degree, and I know that you went on to seminary, and I'm wondering when you began to awaken to um, your trans identity, mm-hmm. and you know, oftentimes with individuals in the trans community, because you know, I do a lot of work there as a psychologist and an advocate. Um, in our in our little town here, <laughs> writing a lot of letters for HRT. Um, a lot of times, there's evidence early on when people kind of look back, and and then there is also this time of awakening to the reality and and a lot of fears and and navigating that. So, can you speak a little bit about that process to you, both the awakening and maybe things earlier on that you might have noticed? Yeah, um, for me, uh, I see my whole experience very much as like a very long journey. Um, Even the me like four years ago um, couldn't have pictured the me that I am right now. And I know that's just being human. It's part of all of our evolution of self. Um, But I can like look back and see ways that I was definitely not fitting the gender expectations. Um, as a kid, I was definitely like the tomboy that never wanted to, to sit down, was always running around, playing tackle football, um, wanting to do everything that my older brother was doing. And I just had such a powerful mom who was just, you know, still is, a powerhouse of you will respect me. It doesn't matter what my gender marker is. Like mm-hmm. um, she definitely had deconstructed all of that when it comes to like how a woman should be treated with respect or not treated with respect. Um, so she was just, she was the one in charge of the house. I always had strong female leadership in that regard, like experience. Um, and I think that for me, that was kind of like a cool, I can do whatever I want. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't remember growing up thinking I can't do something just because I was a girl. Um, until my parents actually sat me down when I started talking about ministry because they were like, oh, we should give you this heads up. Um, But on the flip side, my dad was really traditional, and there were so many instances in my life growing up where uh, he would keep me at arm's length because I needed to have been spending my time learning from my mom and not learning from him. 
uh, where he would take my brother and go do things that I was like, that looks like so much fun. And that's where all my interest lies. And he would be like, you need to go learn how to cook and clean from your mom. Uh, in which my mother is an extreme introvert who teaches uh, fourth grade now, but for decades taught fifth grade. Uh, and she would just be like, can you just leave me alone? <laughs> can you actually just go somewhere else and I'll do this? Like, this is my time for quiet. I want to clean and cook. Like, I'll get these things done. Um, and so I kind of had this liminal space of I'm being told by my dad that that's where I need to be. My mom's not affirming that. In fact, she's just kind of like, that's not true at all. Like, you're going to do your chores because you guys have chores. It was split evenly between my brother and I. Um, but I was just always that, like, ragamuffin, tomboyish kind of kid. And uh, I, whenever I started kind of coming into my identity as a queer person, it was first through my attraction to women. Um, and that was something that growing up in purity culture, because even though I definitely remember, like, these teachings I mentioned earlier about how we live like Christ, it was also deeply rooted in purity culture. We live like Christ by being pure. And especially um, especially when it came, came to your sexual activity as a teenager. So I had like a purity ring and I signed the pledge card and I did all of that stuff. And I was definitely like a saving my faith of Jesus <laughs> type of kid. Um, I actually had a best friend. We talked about marrying Jesus. And I'm just like, you know, it's very weird culture to grow up in. Um, so for so long, I don't think any form of my sexuality was really on my radar um, because I wasn't supposed to be paying attention to it to begin with. Mm -hmm. Like I dated a guy in high school. It wasn't great, but, you know, it was high school. And went to college and was at a very conservative um, Christian institution. And being part of that purity culture and saving yourself self until marriage kind of got like headed but headed hat hmm. head butted thank you i got stuck on that <laughs> head butted against this like i'm looking around and all i see are these very like misogynistic guys expecting to be able to marry a wife by spring ring by spring who will be able to do all the cooking and cleaning so he can do ministry and he also needs to have a wife before he can become a pastor because that's what you have to do in Oklahoma. You don't need to go to seminary, but you do need to have a wife mm -hmm. and be a man. <laughs> Those two things are great for you. Um, and so I was just kind of like, I want to save myself for whom I'm going to marry, and I'm definitely not going to marry a misogynistic person like that. Um, so it wasn't until I actually like had my first like feeling of attraction to a woman, and then just being like, oh, oh, this is this is this the is thing, the, yeah. But I had already gone through a deconstruction about being queer and, you know, God affirming every single person by that time. <clears throat> like it was going into my senior year of college. And so I'd already done all of this work about um, you absolutely can be gay and be Christian and God does not see that as a sin. And so it was interesting doing all of that stuff and then being like, oh, OK, that's part of my identity, too. Also, I don't know if that's my whole identity or if it's just this person, you know, part of that, like, whole process we go through. Um, and then moving and transferring from that setting of my education after graduation to going to Truett Seminary for a year, uh, which was as the uh, dean of my college told me as he threw my paperwork at me, that's the only seminary that will take you. 
because um, I had had an exit interview with him, of course. And so I went, I went to Truett thinking, okay, this is going to be great. This is the progressive place I've been striving and pining for. And I step into the, the doors and experience this moment of just going, oh, shit. I think that's not true. This is just the next iteration. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a, a, a professor sit me down at Truett and say, I think it's like the second week of classes, and say, I, I want you to know that we say that we're going to, we affirm women in ministry, but we're not going to help you find a church. Um, and then started keeping my eyes even more open. And it was, uh, and, and my seminary experience at Truett, which is where I was like, I felt like I was the thorn in every professor's side, mm-hmm. except for like the few, um, because it, everything, I just felt like there isn't a single conversation that's happening around me that I feel like is us actually saying, no, we could be wrong. Mm. No, there, this is more complicated. Um, in fact, I, I, because of my undergrad experience, I was very lucky. I had like world-class professors in my undergrad um, who really pushed us. And I had one professor that was like, I know most of you won't go to seminary, but you'll become a pastor. So this class is gonna be like a seminary level class. Um, and so I was like academically kind of bored at Truett, but then on top of that, it was just like, I'm hearing the same stuff and y'all are supposed to be the place that's progressive. Mm-hmm. And so we would have these conversations and I'd be asking questions and um, it came to a head in one of my classes uh, when a student was just like, so what do we do whenever students or congregants ask a question that we don't feel comfortable answering. And it was a pastoral care class. And so like he was trying to help us basically get ready for being pastors. And the professor was just like, well, give us an example. Give us like a case study. Like, what what were you talking about? And he's like, okay, well, this, I'm specifically thinking about this one incident I had with one of my youth. And the student went on to describe how a student said, "I I think it's okay to be gay and Christian or to be gay in general. And the way that he kept saying it was just like, they keep saying homosexual. The the homosexual is, okay, it's okay for the homosexual to be gay or to be a Christian. And the professor was also using that word. And mm-hmm. I was just sitting there in that space. And at that time I had disassociated my queer identity from whom I had to be every single day, that 90% of the time I felt like I was advocating for others. And it wasn't until a lot later on that I was just like, Oh, I was trying to advocate for myself. And um, what does that mean? But in that moment, I was just like, I just read a PhD study that's actually talking about how words are just as important in the conversations we have with people, not necessarily the theological precepts, but the words that we use in the dialogue. And if you keep saying the word homosexual to somebody who is seeking pastoral care, that can shut them down because of trigger and fear faster than anything else. So before you can even say whether or not you think it's okay for that person to be called a beloved of God, they're already gone Mm. thinking that you're about to condemn them because of the words you've used. So instead you could say same gender loving partners or, you know, I was trying to give these other like language and these other words that you could use. Um, 
And the professor, after I was kind of like said a couple more things, just kind of went, are you done now? Wow. And then just like turned back to the student and said, when that happens, you'll tell them that homosexuality is a sin. Um, and that was the moment where I was like, and I've got to leave here. Yeah. Uh, and then I did all the things and, and went to Bright. And Bright Divinity at TCU is a place where, you know, they want you to learn how to ask hard questions but at the same time, it's an environment where it's as inclusive for LGBTQT people as possible. It's a place that I first was able to kind of walk into my queer identity and find myself, find my voice as a lesbian minister at the time and find this like tenacity that I used to have as a kid of just being like, I don't care what all these things are. This is who I am. This is what I'm called to do. Tell me how to do it. Mm-hmm. Teach me. Educate me. I am paying you this, th- these things. Um, but there was also the place where I got to actually be challenged and pushed and, you know, learn about power and privilege um, as a white queer person. Um, learn about the, the history of trans violence. Um, learn about how uh, we actually have queer icon iconology in our Christian history and what does that mean for us uh, and actually get to kind of like explore these things in a way that isn't about defending myself or somebody else but isn't a place where I can go okay and what next not I need to teach you something but rather how can I go even further from here how can I be pushed and challenged even further to think deeper to be able to answer questions that have been thought out and written down and analyzed not just repeated Mm -hmm. that everyone from the past you know two millennia have said um and it was just a place where I really got to dive into that and in the middle of doing all of that um I actually got to explore just being a person and dating and being able to see oh wow, like, you know, my upraising and purity culture really kind of messed me up and I need to deconstruct that a little bit before I can start really dating. Okay, now that I've done that, like, now I need to continue to deconstruct what does it mean to um, be a more masculine presenting person? Like, what does that mean for me? Am I just like a butch lesbian, which is just a stereotype and that is glorious and cool? Or am I more than that? And that kind of brought me into that, like my journey into being non-binary and um, where I'm at now is being trans and and actually going through the transition process starting back in January. And what's been amazing um, and such a privileged thing for me to be able to even do is that all along that time I was really doing that work, I was working in the church. Mm -hmm. I was teaching youth. I was working with children. I was preaching Um, I was a chaplain um, for people at their deathbeds and just having all of these realizations both intellectually and spiritually where I was able to say I'm really glad that I get to ask these questions and finally find that there are people who have been thinking about them longer than I have Mm. and that I can learn from their voices and their perspectives and also be in spaces where sometimes it just doesn't matter because this person is dying and I get to be in this space with them and I get to hold their hand 
and I get to read a psalm that I disagree with theologically, but it is their favorite, and that makes it so much better and reclaim that scripture in a way that's not about theology but is about human relationships and kind of get back to that thing for me, which is what drew me to church from the very beginning, which was people and community. Mm-hmm. Growing up as a, as a, um, as a younger kid um, and an abusive older brother, the church was the first place I ever found friendship. That was the first place I ever felt like I could look at someone and look up to them as almost like a sibling. Um, my family is like pretty isolated from the rest of our larger family. So being able to feel like, well, at church, I kind of have aunts and uncles. Um, It was those moments in ministry alongside my theological education and deconstruction that brought me back to those memories and what keeps me doing this work. Um, It keeps me wanting to be able to build those connections. And you are so, so talented at that. You know, I think it is the spiritual gift of seeing the other through the lens of Christ and communing in that space that, you know, not a lot of people know how to do. They they can do it within the boundaries of their own comfort mm-hmm. of what they think is right and wrong. But to transcend that, to be a soul with a soul amongst souls is, is such a gift when I was thinking about our our interview today, I was thinking about how, you know, as I said earlier, how much I love watching you with my children, and I love when you you share with me about the teaching moments that you have with the children that mm-hmm. you pastor, and also thinking about your trans identity and the historical oppression of the LGBTQ community, um, but especially, you know, in terms of the trans community, um, historically formerly called transsexuals, and now we mm-hmm. see transgender, um, and some of the messages that the broader um, majority internalized about, you know, this is a sex predator. Mm-hmm. We have to protect our children from someone who's transsexual or transgender and and how and that has been absolutely ludicrous to me for a long time but um in your embodiment as a pastor for the vulnerable it is so evidently obvious that this cultural narrative is so flawed and damaging Mm. and wrong and uh, prejudicial um and you hold that space beautifully Uh, As you have come into your trans identity, what sorts of experiences have you had in terms of hate and pushback and, you know, maybe in the church or outside of the church? You know, there's there's oftentimes so much fear and it's legitimate, you know, as soul forces signs were saying, Mm -hmm. like they to be part of this community opens you to the threat of violence, um, and amongst many other things. What is, has your experience been in that regard? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I will say that I think because I did kind of have that whole, like, I am an Enneagram 9, but I'm also like a wing 8, and so I, I get into, like, feisty mode, and I can live into that for a long time if I'm given 
a justification. Mm-hmm. So I think when I was like walking into my identity, I just lived in that realm of anger and like frustration and hurt. Um, but also just kind of like almost laugh whenever hateful things are said about me because I'm a trans person or um, because I'm a lesbian or because I'm non-binary or whatever identity I was holding because I was just like, that's the best you can do. I've already heard it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for a long time, I kind of lived into that realm. And I think I still kind of do when it's things of like, I hear people that I don't even know say stuff about me that are negative or make assumptions about me because of my identity. Um, And so when it comes to like my work as a minister and the violence that I can hear and experience, um, uh, I haven't, I don't have a lot of that experience. Um, part of that is, um, being a pretty outspoken assigned female at birth minister. Um, so the churches that are going to hire me to begin with are already going to be pretty progressive. Um, and so the moments that I have experienced hurt from the church because of my identity have mostly come from people's ignorance or um, they just they are thinking that they were close enough that they can ask things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I've received like a lot of transphobic things um, from well-meaning individuals. And those are the ones that have probably been the only thing that got under my skin. Um, when it comes to people trying to tell me I can't do something, that's when my, like, I'm just like, <laughs> watch me. Uh, that's cute. Leaning into um, my eight. Oh, I'm going to be a challenger and prove you wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. You've just become another reason why I should be awesome. <laughs> um, but when it's like my congregants who are well-intended and just say really awful things, um, from a place of just like, oh, I'm just curious, or let me give you advice, or, you know, I see you as, you know, one, I received an email once where someone was like, when my kids were 13, and they were trying to figure out who they were, they were trying different hairstyles and different styles of, of presenting themselves, and I see you doing that, and you need to figure this out, so maybe you should hire a stylist to help you figure this out, because you're now a professional, uh, so you can't be looking for your and finding your identity when you're a professional. Um, and just having to be in those moments of going like, I just. What? Why? Huh? In what world did you think like this is going to be a great conversation? I'm going to send this as an email. Mm-hmm. Or inappropriate. Dear <laughs> Let me tell you all the ways that I am freaked out by you. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'm really lucky because of Bright and because of the relationships I've made with ministers and friends that are very dear to me, I've learned how to be able to go to those spaces and be like, I am pissed, I am hurt, I am upset, because how dare they? Why? How could they possibly think this? Why would they think it's appropriate to even say it? And then be able to like really feel those emotions and talk with my friends through it and... Um, therapists as well and just being able to go like okay I need to feel these things because if I don't then they're just going to fester Mm -hmm. but then once I feel those things I can then go back in to the experience with the congregant and for me then it just becomes like okay I'm going to teach you now it's a teaching moment yeah because 
when I really break it all down and look at it critically, what I'm seeing is somebody saying, hey, I trust you to to see my messiness and my inappropriate way of addressing these questions. I'm trusting you to meet me here. Mm-hmm. And either I use it as a chance to educate and say, like, hey, I see where your heart was. Let me let me break this down a little bit for you and, and say, like, we don't talk about people's appearance we don't judge someone based off where they're at in life because guess what it doesn't matter if you're 13 29 queer straight you're always going to be evolving and deconstructing and you're always going to be experiencing something in your life that's radically changing you and we're not going to be put together and we're not going to be cleaned up all the time and sometimes we're just going to be messy and i accept your messiness and i love you uncritically now, I'm, I'm going to hold you responsible to your actions. There's always going to be accountability. But when you're going through your discovery of self, I'm here celebrating you because that's what we do as humans. We lift each other up so that we can actually continue to grow and ask harder questions and try even more risky things. And if we can't treat each other with that type of respect and dignity then we're really missing the whole point of humanity, let alone the teachings of Jesus. Mm. Um, so let's just, let's address these things in a way that I can kind of show you how, please don't say these things to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have to be your, um, I don't want to say experiment, but like yeah. your place to test out what you shouldn't say or do, I'm willing to be that because that's what I have professionally walked myself into. Right. Like you you can't be in my line of work as a queer person and go like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. No, you expect that stuff. You have to do your own work of being to build the relationships with people who can hold that safety net for you, like those friends I mentioned earlier, but as well as being able to say like, of course, this person, this 60-year-old retired white person in small-town Texas is going to say something like this, but at least say it to me because I'm paid for you to say that to. Say it to me because I've done 10 years' worth of work regarding my sexuality and my gender expression. Um, Yeah, it strikes me that you are so uniquely equipped and beautifully equipped to pastor or usher people into a knowledgeable and compassionate understanding of what it means to be trans or what it means to interact with someone who's in the trans or queer community or LGBT community. And I think about my patients, and I would say primarily my um, trans female patients, mm-hmm. and the fears that they have, mm-hmm. um, you know, having such high rates of physical violence perpetrated against them, you know, with the bathroom bill and, mm-hmm. you know, having to go to the bathroom right before they leave their home because they're, they're not safe. Mm-hmm. What if they get attacked? There are people carry guns everywhere in Texas and and this very real threat to physical safety mm-hmm. as well as emotional safety when hate speech is spoken or 
slurs or slang. You know, I was at a um, this bar in the corner after work one day getting some dinner and hearing a lot of lawyers go to this bar, hearing these lawyers to so these highly educated people just talking the most disgusting, vile hate speech about mm. the trans community. And I put down my drink and I went up and I said, I'm going to need to close out and leave. I cannot tolerate being around this sort of speech and and the um person checking me out was like i'm i'm really sorry i just i don't know what to do and and not even being in the community but having such a a big heart for it Mm -hmm. you know for you to have a, a position of power where your voice gets to be listened to um, where there's at least enough support because you're in this role that there's space for your voice to come in and, and so compassionately and gently educate. You know, it may be that people don't change. It may be mm-hmm. that they continue to um, perpetrate against you or against others, but at least there's a system that is allowing you to have a voice where for so many in the trans community the fear is so strong and there's no platform for a voice Mm -hmm. and and so you know not that you have not suffered because this has been such a a journey of awakening and fighting for your place um but but, the privilege but the privilege that comes with Mm -hmm. pastoring um, you know, being white, as you said, you know, and identifying as a masculine person and, and, and passing so well, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I just think it's so important for the listeners who are going to yes. have their minds open today to know the full spectrum of what it means to be trans in our country. And, you know, your opinion does not matter when lives are on the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really want to speak into what you just said right there as well. Um, the amount of privilege that I have as a white passing, somewhat passing man uh, is never lost on me. And when we're having conversations about trans identity, um, I am highly aware and attuned to the fact that my perspective, my voice, and my experience is only of peer privilege. Um, I'm highly educated. I work for uh, a, a very liberal church. Uh, I will only work for liberal churches. Um, but if I were uh, M to F, if I were M to F and black, yeah. I would be the most targeted person in, in, this country. in this country. And there would not be a platform for my voice to be heard. Um, and I think that's like part of the tension that happens with these conversations too for me is going like, I'm highly aware that um, when people are going to be listening to this and experiencing it, um, I'm glad that I get to be here and be able to partner with you. And also there is a part of me that's just kind of like, but mine, I'm pretty idyllic when it comes to a trans experience. Um, My ability to be able to get an appointment with Planned Parenthood in Austin and get their, um, my insurance to cover all that kind of stuff and immediately be able to get on testosterone like the ease of the journey when it came to my like actual coming into self uh, has only been like open doors for me. Uh, like I just have no <laughs> real struggles with that stuff. But um, I know and I'm aware, I'm just kind of like, if you want to hear a real experience of what is it like to be trans, don't listen to people like me all the time. 
Like I, if this is the first time you're listening to a trans voice, I'm very glad that you get to, I get to be here in this space. But I need I really encourage and recommend and earnestly push you to look into the voices of black women, um, listen to the voices of um, trans women who are absolutely going through peril every single day of their life because trans women it's a lot harder to pass it is and it's more expensive and it's more dangerous Um, I have fears about walking into bathrooms and I have fears of going to gas stations and you know I have fears of having to stop in a small town to get something or my car breaking down or you know that kind of stuff but like um, it's, it's nothing about like really my physical, like life being threatened to me. I'm just like, I might get hate. Mm-hmm. I might get a hateful look or someone might yell at me or I might get called something, a slur. Um, but being in my position, knowing that I have this power as a professional minister I would rather the time be spent on pointing people towards reading authors like Audre Lorde, reading authors who are going to give a a perspective that I can never speak to. It's the perspective that changed me and brought me to where I am in my life. Um, Being able to dive in and actually like look at queer history. Don't just look at what happened in 2015 and think everything, you know, all the problems were solved for the LGBT community, look into actually learning about the AIDS epidemic and the 300,000 people um, who died in the marches on Washington and the ashes of loved ones being poured onto Capitol Hill. Um, Look into how stories like Matthew Shepard were only a pinnacle of the true horrors, and the reason why we got that was because he was a white man. Mm -hmm. And that story is awful and atrocious, and it's not a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's not the abnormal abnormality for queer people, and especially for trans women of color. Um, and so I'm I'm always willing to talk about my trans experience. I mean, at, at a, just like a like if watching my physical body change, my voice change, um, that kind of stuff. It's it's really interesting at a, a sociological level how people react to me and treat me now. Um, the amount of passing privilege, like it's kind of disgusting and like living creepy life as a white male now, you're like yeah. getting some of that white male privilege at times, mm-hmm. and also like having that and going like, okay, for the not for the first time in my life because no matter what, I've been white and middle class and highly educated. I've always had this privilege and power, um, but the amount of just ability to look into somebody's life and speak in an authority for them and have them take it seriously, it is enraging only because I'm like, that means people could have been doing this for a very long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I never want to make it seem like cis men are the problem or anything like that, but for those who are listening, I just want to say, like, please, please be very highly aware of the power and authority you naturally have. And if you feel uncomfortable to say something that you think is inappropriate, imagine what it would be like if 
you weren't that person, if you were a trans woman of color and your friend just said something like horrible and you feel like, oh, I don't want to ruin the friendship, ruin the friendship. Call that shit out because yeah, it we've becomes, stop it. yeah, it becomes a part of our feeling like we can do whatever we want because we keep saying it. And if you know that you can actually speak into somebody's life and you choose not to, you're just as culpable for the violence that occurs uh, to me. Yeah. Um, well, to all, if, if, it, if oppression is spoken and hate is spoken to any marginalized population, and I would include any cis woman in that as well, mm-hmm. historical oppression and, and current modern day oppression, um, that it is necessary to, with whatever power or privilege you have, to, to be a voice for that population in, in an awareness of the, the implications of this speech. And, and that's where allyship comes in, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, um, being a white woman myself, white cis woman, um, I've been an ally to the LGBT com- community for many, many years, over, over a decade, um, partly coming out of my own Christian background and seeing the impact on the mental, emotional health of my friends who struggled with same-sex attraction. They couldn't be gay because it was a sin, but then they, their natural sexuality unfolding and they couldn't stop it, but they would pray that God would take it away every night. And it broke my heart, and that was really the beginning of my my desire to be an ally and, and if ever tagged in to be an advocate um, but knowing that you and I both have so much privilege mm-hmm. as we speak to issues that others are maybe more deeply impacted by, mm-hmm. um, you know, and to a degree, every trauma survivor thinks that they, it could have been worse, <laughs> and that, no matter how bad it is, you know, and I hear that and there's research on that. And I experienced that with my own traumas. I'm like, well, it wasn't, couldn't, it's not as bad as, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, you play such an important role, a necessary role, and, and to suffer greater or differently doesn't make your role any less valid um, in this hopefully global awakening that will be, be continuing to happen and, and making our world a more loving place. But thinking about you and my children's lives, um, you know, I only started having friends maybe three years ago because I wasn't allowed to have friends before um, during my marriage. And then really it's been a shit show, as you know. Like I, I didn't really know what a friend meant, that, that they should be kind to you and not take advantage of you and pressure you. I didn't realize that. So that's been an interesting journey um, for me personally. But as I have, because you are so gentle and kind and trustworthy and emanate this Christ um, love allowed you into my heart and into my home with my children. I've been trying to educate them for many years on LGBT rights and the normativity of it. And I have so many, you know, feminist baby board book and, (laughs) you know, uh, famous black women in America. And, you know, I try so desperately to, um, 
enrich my children's lives with truth and and love and reality. Um, but I don't know that I have had I, I have not had a close trans friend. I have not had a lot of close friends, as you know. Um, and so having conversations with my children who absolutely adore Milo, absolutely adore them, um, and the beauty of the normativity of the conversations that I'm mm. having with Sophie, where she's like, oh my gosh, Milo's coming over. Um, should I call them they? Or should I call them he? He's, I really love him, but I don't know the one, the right one. And I'm like, why don't, why don't you have a conversation with Milo about that when they're here? And she's like, okay. And I just love that your presence in our lives is such a beautiful way that my children, without me having to be reading to them about it all the time, mm-hmm. get to experience a loving, safe, relational connection with someone who is different from them and who knows you know they're young they may I don't know how they will identify or what their sexuality will be but I want them to know that we are all here together and there's there's no differentiation other than the curiosity that we might have towards one another I'm so grateful for you in our lives for that and many reasons I actually had that conversation with someone earlier today um, talking about my work. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I never even met an LGBTQ person, period. Um, everyone was, you know, hetero. And cis. Allegedly. And cis. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, and you just didn't talk about it. And so, like, not only it's really exciting for me, um, because I, I, I think probably what kept me going into the church before I had that moment of just like, oh yeah, it's the people. When I was just at a head level trying to make way, I kept thinking about how I want people like me to see someone like me or like them in the church. And it's evolved bigger than that now because I was just like, I said it earlier, it was just like, we're normalizing it. Like, a children's youth minister, like it's my job to make kids feel have, like they're having fun and they're being heard and that their feelings are being acknowledged. And it's all about trying to help make friendships happen. So it's like and most of the time, like children are going to love that because you're giving them attention, you're giving them time and you're giving them love. Um, and then at a step higher than that, I'm also just by being myself, giving them an opportunity to be able to, um, at a young age, deconstruct the binary thinking, deconstruct, um, like, hearing classmates talk about how queer people are going to hell, and they're like, well, that's interesting because my minister, who is my pastor at a Baptist church, is queer. And that's weird. Tell me how that lines up, you know, and having those opportunities. And also like so much of our society, it's all about just repeating the things that we've always been told Mm -hmm. and not doing the work of deconstructing or asking critical questions or pushing ourselves to not just be like, well, it's plural and grammar. So I'm haha, I don't have to do it. Uh, Because it's Mm -hmm. technically incorrect. 
Um, but still affirm you. Um, and instead our kids are being like, oh, so gender is he, she, they, he, car. Like they're getting this whole like opportunity for a bigger understanding of what it mean to be a person. And it's normalized by people that they feel like they can trust and that spends time with them and loves them. And so it's their, this just generation is growing up with an experience that is radically different than what I experienced. Like not only are they growing up with queer people in their lives, they're growing up with professional adult queer people in their lives whom they learn from and because of that are able to not have to go back and do the work of unlearning things because it was a part of their, like inclusion was a part of their learning experience from day one. Um, and it's intentional parenting, like what you were saying, about like, you know, raising them with these books, raising them with these stories, um, and then as a parent, also raising them with like community, community and diversity, and it not just being like we all look and sound the same because we're all from the same town. You know, there's there's all of these opportunities for children now that I'm really excited about that because of things like the internet, they can grow up hearing stories that. We couldn't tell because we didn't know them. Well, well, now we can because the storyteller is actually a lot available online. And, you know, so I'm, I'm as a children, youth and family minister, that was an exciting part of the pandemic, even though the pandemic and ministering through it and the pandemic in itself was awful. It challenged and pushed that where it's like, oh, it doesn't just have to be my voice. And it was part of that remembering that the, the people that transformed and, and radically changed my life were not the ones who sounded like me or looked like me. It was the people that I was reading um, and exploring their perspective of growing up in the 60s in the South. It was people who were growing up in the, in the 80s and uh, watching their loved ones die from AIDS um, and, and learning these things. And I was like, oh, you know, it's the same thing that we can do now with our kids. Um, so how can we incorporate as many voices as possible in our education experience for our children? Um, that includes um, our education that we have in the, in the schools, and it includes what we have in our religious experience and upraising, too. Um, I was someone who was very lucky and privileged enough to be able to get a high, high enough education that I finally got to start hearing from black voices and Latina voices and being able to go, oh, my goodness, like, there is an entire different world out there. And then learning about Eastern culture and hearing those voices and realizing and seeing so much commonality across humanity, we just use different words and expressions from it because our languages are different. But there is a commonality of like seeking this purpose-driven life and not in a way that is like... (laughs) Rick Warren. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but really is just like, hey, like, being able to make the money, get the car, have the house, get the retirement plan, like uh, just it's just not what this like your human yearning really is. Mm-hmm. It's being able to have connection and being able to feel like you're making change. You're being able to push yourself and those around you, and not in a way that has to be you know damaging, but can be uplifting and loving, and being able to start doing that work. Um, and do that work as a trans minister in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it's exciting. And it's one of those moments where I kind of go, I can't believe I'm really here doing this stuff. Um, and I'm 
very, again, very privileged to be able to do it. Um, but wow, why would I want my voice to be the only one that's heard? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and in doing, and in having this beautiful perspective, this is one of the things I love so much about you as a fellow, like social justice advocate and warrior. Um, so much of the time people want to be the star of mm. social justice activism <laughs> and you know I, I can I can understand that there's there's a piece of it also that's about like that comes from a place of um, frustration and maybe mm-hmm. maybe even anger of, I, I've got to shout this from the rooftops and it's got to be me that you listen to and and I have in my own identity transitioned from having that kind of experience of like you've got to listen to me to as you deepen and mature and assess all that you aren't Mm -hmm. um and all the voices the other voices that need to be elevated kind of coming more into this um shared space that we're we're doing this work together i play one one piece in it but i must hear the voices of others and elevate Mm -hmm. their voices and um burt burleson the chaplain or the um, director of spiritual life at Baylor uh, when I left in my blaze of glory being an LGBT (laughs) ally and an advocate for um, women who had been sexually assaulted. Um, I sat with him and I just was weeping and crying about how I could not understand the caring Christian community Mm. doing the things it was doing, hearing the conversations that I was a part of from administrators that were endorsing hate and endorsing violence and covering up violence, um, that he told me, Emma, I don't think that you're someone that's here to shout from the rooftops. I think you're someone who's here to stand in the in-between. And I remember being pissed off about it. I'm Mm. like, no, I'm here to shout from the rooftops. And, And what I've learned in my work as a social justice um, advocate is that that doesn't invite people to change. Mm -hmm. That invites more um, kind of defensiveness and a doubling down in a Mm closed-minded viewpoint. And so he was actually right. Like I do feel and as I've matured and your maturity is far beyond your years you're an octogenarian in your heart. You're like fully 80 years old. Um, Trauma. <laughs> as it does. But realizing, you know, this standing in the in-between to usher people from the old way into the new way is a privilege. And it allows you to be gentle and loving mm-hmm. and and curious and validating of the pain of changing the way some you, someone thinks mm-hmm. like it is painful to go from knowing with full truth that this person is bad and I'm right to going into holy crap I may have been wrong and this mm-hmm. person is a person and I've been oppressing them to have a gentle guide through that is necessary for change as much as there may be a desire to condemn those who are ignorant to mm-hmm. to what we know to be true and, and reality. Yeah, and I think the for me, system learning was a big part of my ability to shift from a, a perspective that was full-on 
like fight mode with my Enneagram eight into this more of like a peacekeeper. Um, I think I think because I'm a I'm a nine wing eight, I like the peacemaker mentality for yeah. myself. It's kind of like my little persona, I guess, where it is just like I absolutely could be the person that's like angry and shutting things down. I, I've lived that life. I know it. And it's one that I am not ashamed of. It's one that I saw there was my side of myself that needed to be a voice that was not there in the particular setting that I was in. The difference for me being as soon as I knew better that there were other voices out there who had far far exceeded my experience and have been doing this work for Mm -hmm. decades and centuries um, who are doing it in a way that is a quiet but almost more radical approach. When I experienced that and was able to lean into that more, um, that's where I kind of found myself going, okay, every single person is a very complicated, knotted ball of yarn. Mm-hmm. And being able to like yell at them and tell them that they're wrong may make me feel really good and like boost my ego and make me feel like I'm making change. But the reality is, is I'm just another angry person yelling at them about how wrong they are. Where instead, the true work of that transformation comes through accountability and accountability comes from work that is much more intimate and vulnerable. Yes. And it's it's so much easier to, you know, sit in a pulpit and talk about how y'all are all wrong because you think one way when you're not thinking like me, who I am the progressive liberal thinker of the century. If It's so easy to do that, and it's so much harder to be able to actually say like hey we have some work to do yeah let's buckle down and start telling some stories what makes you you let me share other people's stories let them talk to you as well learn how to listen learn how to be quiet learn how to realize that your perspective is just one of millions Mm -hmm. and and doing that work to me, that's when we actually get to start coming back together. Yes. And doing something that is a lifelong journey of change, not a we're angry, screaming. Yeah, moment of conflict that doesn't yeah, last. That doesn't last and ends up hurting people a lot longer just to be able to say, I did a thing. Yeah. Um, In my foreness, my shouting from the from the mountaintops was usually like a little like this milo you might appreciate it like i'm so excited people are hurting here and if we keep doing this there's blood on our hands because people are dying so it's like (laughs) a little less yelly and a lot more like i'm having an emotional breakdown um but but coming from that same space of like please listen please listen um God, I remember one conversation about diversity in a staff meeting where I broke down crying because people were not attending to the pain of humans. Mm. And this is a bunch of psychologists. And the director stopped the meeting and was very uh, patronizing. Like, Emma, do you, you're struggling. Like, you need some 
time, like whatever's going on in you is a personal problem. And just, I mean, there's so, so many gender things there. And, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the voice of minorities is often imbued with, with emotion and that emotion might be anger or sadness or whatever, but it's Mm -hmm. like, please, please hear. And so to me, the, the human pain has been that thing that continues to drive me forward and now in these more gentle ways that that really do invite um what i hope to be lasting change change through relationship which you are so good at um what is what is something that you would want our listeners to take away from your gift of sharing today what are you hopeful for Mm. I am hopeful that in our conversation together that people might become more curious about the differing ways to be in this world. Um, I, I often get a very interesting response from folks who are either super over the church, who don't want to have anything to do with it, um, rightfully so, and whatever their experience is, that wasn't a derogatory against them. Um, that are almost just kind of like, I can't believe you're still in the church, um, because they have this this experience that has shaped them, that has harmed them, and I I hope for people for the listeners like that maybe maybe open yourself up to the curiosity of who you are, where you might resonate with the divine, where you might resonate with some kind of sacred sacri- uh, sacred practice uh, in a way that maybe you can start de- like letting go of the, re- mm, I don't want to say letting go of the religious trauma because I don't want it to seem like I'm just saying let it go, mm-hmm. but do the work of the Rele- religious, release it, it, grieve it. Mm-hmm. And then let yourself be curious because the world of religious thought um, is wide and massive and deep and it is beautiful and I think for me when in those particular instances when people are just like I'm just so over church and religion because of all of these things what makes me sad isn't like oh well that just means the church has failed I don't care about that the church has failed what I care about is that in that instance because the church has failed we've created a wall to your heart mm. of being able for you to tap into a connection in this world that can be very meaningful making for you. Um, It doesn't need to be Christianity. It doesn't need to be a religion. It can just be an experience. It can be a practice. It can be meditative breathing, whatever it is. Open yourself up to that um, by hearing that we're all trying to figure it out. And there are so many ministers and churches who are very much acknowledging and we accept that we have failed and we have done more harm than good. But I hope that me- doesn't mean that you close yourself up to this spiritual experience that is available. And also, I really hope that this opens a curiosity for people to share their stories. Um, for those who are in the marginalized, we're told to tell our stories a lot because people always say it's not facts, it's the stories that changes people's mind. And while that is true, also it's not your responsibility or your, or your job 
to to risk that vulnerability over and over and over again in a space that you may not know that you're safe. That's not what I'm saying with with sharing your stories. For the ones who have a lot of power and comfort and privilege, get uncomfortable with your story. Share your story. Acknowledge the parts of you that had it easy. Acknowledge the parts of you that had it really hard. Acknowledge the pain. Acknowledge the ease. And let that open you up to seeing that the people around you are also experiencing those same things. Every single one of us is trying to make sense of a senseless world. And some of us use it through religion, some of us use it through our jobs, some of us use it through science, art, whatever. We're all trying to make sense of it, but if we don't start making sense of our own story first, we're not going to be able to understand the world around us. And that's the thing that I think I fall more in line of, I struggle more with in working with the church, is trying to get people to actually just tell their story and own their shit in the good way and the bad way and then let that be that curiosity that then is like oh so I never thought about how this part of my childhood shaped me to think about this did you experience that as a kid how did that shape you oh you didn't experience that tell me about that and what was different for you because it's in the being curious about self and others that we really get to start connecting with something that's so much bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's not about right or wrong answers. It's about relationships and caring for one another and seeing that none of us are, you know, amazing superstars or the worst of the worst. We all, we all mess up. We all do things right. We all wish we could have done something differently. And if we can just embrace that, um, and that curiosity for self and others, I just I firmly believe that it can be a beautiful, beautiful relationship building for the whole world. Absolutely. You know, as we grow in our understanding of self and the other, it is a softening process that mm-hmm. allows us to connect to the fact that we are all human here. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think of trans rights are humans or human rights, women's rights are human rights, like Remember the dignity and worth of the person. We are all human Mm -hmm. and are deserving of the same space that any other human takes up. If we can seek to listen and understand both internally and to the to the voices around us. I'm so profoundly grateful for this episode. I mean, preach you did (laughs) fantastic but but the invitation that you give for listeners to open their hearts um and how important it is to the the charge here is not to open your heart to the other to open your heart to milo's story but but milo has has requested and i think this is so beautiful open your heart to yourself Mm -hmm. face all of who you are and learn to love that as well as become curious about the other and have that transformative experience there as well. You know, mm-hmm. this is what's going to change our world. So listeners, we are we are privileged today to hear this story and, and the invitations that have been made. And my hope is that you have open hearts and open minds and, and, and a renewed curiosity about all that you don't know because... 
as you evolve and heal, it is very common to realize that the more you know, the more you know you know nothing. <laughs> and so let's all be a little bit more curious and kind and compassionate. And I will see you next week uh, on the next episode of Sister Speak. Thanks for listening. Bye. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Emma J. Church for updates and podcast schedule. Catch the show on your favorite podcast platform or at roguemedianetwork.com. 